0: I wish I could say that Kip is the only one who's done that, but brother, I've, I've, I've done that. I've done that. It's, it's one thing to do it in front of a close-knit family. It's another thing to do it over at Yurish. Yeah, I've done it. Oh, goodness, it's really good to be here. Uh, I'm Frank Eshman. I am the Life Care Pastor with Fellowship, and uh, what an honor to be here. It's, uh, it's a pleasure on this Memorial Day weekend, and I know just looking in the room, there are several veterans Uh, That are here. And thank you for serving. Veterans Day, uh, we have a a day that we honor you, but you know what? We have a day, Memorial Day, that we honor those who have fallen, who have given the ultimate sacrifice in the service of our country. And this is the day. Tomorrow's the day that we do that as a country. Uh, We look to those. So if you have in your family or among your close friends, if you have a loved one who you have lost, this is the day. We want, to, we want to give our respect and we want to give our honor because those folks who have done that, men and women who have placed themselves in harm way, harm's way and, and have given of themselves, we owe them such a debt of gratitude that we will never be able to repay. And so may you be blessed. May your families be blessed for the sacrifice that you have made as, as families this Memorial Day. <coughs> Well, we are continuing in our series still, and I don't know if this is the last Sunday uh, that's part of this series or not, but today we are going to look at the question of whether or not God can use me after I have sinned, after I've failed. And to do that, we're going to take a look at King David, the question, again: God still use me after Bathsheba? Well, we're going to spend time in Second Samuel, chapters 11 and 12, and you can open your Bibles to page 187. We're going to be at 187 and 188, and we're, we're mostly going to be in the book of Second Samuel, but we're also going to, towards the end of this message, are going to be looking at Psalm 51, a very familiar psalm in the life of the church. First and 2 Samuel are part of the Old Testament, and they give us information about the early kings of Israel specifically about the life of David. and we, we want to take a close look at, at David today. And some of you may not know much, if anything, about David. And so a little background about King David is going to be helpful. When we first meet David, he's just a shepherd boy, a young boy too, uh, too small, too young to fight in the army when the prophet Samuel is guided by God to seek out a candidate. You see, Saul, King Saul, has been told by God that he is being rejected. Let me, let me read you the part of Scripture uh, where this happens. But now your kingdom must end, for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people, because you, Saul, have not kept the Lord's command. Can you imagine being the king of Israel and having God speak to you and say, You have not kept the Lord's command, and I am going, I've already picked out your replacement. Well, you can imagine just the, the angst, the fear that has been set up. The, uh, oh, I can't imagine how Saul must be feeling at this point. Well, we know the prophet Samuel is searching for Saul's replacement, and he's led to a man named Jesse, a Bethlehem farmer. But Samuel ends up rejecting all of Jesse's older sons, good-looking, strong, strapping young men who are, who are fit. But they're not good enough. As Samuel's admiring one of Jesse's older sons, he hears from God, and he hear, these words come, but the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord The Lord looks at the heart. So, after looking at all of them and having had all of those older sons rejected, Jesse finally brings out his youngest, a small redheaded boy out from the sheep pastures, little David. Hear what Acts 13 says. But God removed Saul and replaced him with David, a man about whom God said, I have found David, son of Jesse. A man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Everything I want him to do. So here we have David. David is a man after God's heart. David is chosen by God, raised up to become the new king of Israel from Israel from a young man. He is brave. He's fearless. He slays Goliath in the name and in the power of God. He's a man of strong conviction. It becomes apparent to his family and his friends really early He has incredible faith in God. He's loyal to King Saul, even though Saul is a jealous king of him. Even though David is being pursued, his life is being threatened because of his success on the battlefield, all uh, all in the service of Saul and of his God, David is a man of godly character, godly integrity. As he goes through life, uh, David's accomplishments are many. So throughout his 40-year time span as king, we know that he captured Jerusalem, he reintegrated, put back together the nation of Israel, both Judah and Israel. He controlled this empire. So as a young man who was herding sheep and writing poetry and singing songs to becoming a fearless, a, a valiant warrior, we know him to be a leader of men, then of armies, and then a leader of the nation of Israel. There was no doubt that David had God's blessing. And as a result, so did the nation of Israel. David was king. And it was all because he was obedient to God. He was a man after God's own heart. But you know what? David was far from a perfect man. And what we're about to see in our studies today is that David Fell and when he fell, he fell really hard, and so I, uh, I was a little, uh, I was a little concerned about coming up here and speaking. I know that I have fallen really hard in my lifetime, uh, probably the most recent this winter, um, after being. Have you all been at a stress level where there's really no margin in your life? I, I was asked. Dean asked me, "Hey, how you doing, brothers? We came in here and thank you so much for asking." And uh, I had to admit that, you know, you get to that margin and one more little stretcher comes in and you crack and you go over the top and you sin. And I'd lashed out at another brother who I happened to work uh, work with and love dearly. And as a pastor, you shouldn't say things that come out and start with four letters uh, in the workplace, no less, right? Well, the fact of the matter is we all sin. We all fall short. But when I walked in here and y'all come in here, I feel really at home. I feel comfortable because there's a few of you I know that are right with me. We all have sinned. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one, no, not one, save Jesus Christ. Are you with me? Amen. Well, David fell. David fell really hard. And so here we have David, David. oh my goodness, the Bible never flatters its heroes. I'm really glad that I wasn't a subject of, uh, of Scripture. Can you imagine? Uh, I, I think, uh, Jimmy, I'm looking at you when I say this, and Matt, and there's a few of us. What if we were the subject of Scripture, and they told our story, and they splashed it for generations to, to come? And what a punchline, right? Guys would chuckle. Men and women would just shake their heads and say, Oh, man, our kids don't want to be like Jimmy and Frank and Matt. What, a, what an object lesson, right? Would we be described as men with hearts like David? Those who have... Are we men after God's own heart? The Holy Spirit really paints a realistic picture of David's life, including the dark side. It's humanist. What we see is that even the best of men and women in the biblical record have their faults and have their failures. Yet, in God's grace, David was still able to be used by God for his purposes. And we're going to see how. So here we are. David's about 50-plus years old, perhaps a little older. He's been on the throne about 20 years, and he's a warrior. He's a leader. He's a man of passion. He's a manner of compassion. But when we look at this next segment of life, we find him falling into sin that has devastating consequences for his family, his reign, and his nation. The point at here is that sin always has consequences. Always bears consequences. You see, we sin when we when we become prideful. We sin when we become isolated. We sin when we become uh, distracted from God's plan for our life. Think about it. What causes temptation, and what is your circumstances at the time? The scripture that was read just a little bit earlier comes from 1 Corinthians 10:12. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We're to take heed, whether we're 20 or 60. We're to take heed. You know, I was in uh, in the practice of law for about 30 years before I got into full-time ministry. And whether I was representing somebody who had been accused of a crime, or I was defending in a uh, civil case because of an action or whatever, had been accused of something, it always amazed me that the individual was able to tell me something that sounded like I, I was just I was in the wrong place, wrong time. We have excuses for what we do, and it always sounds like that. Let's look at Scripture together. 2 Samuel verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 1 and 2. See, these events took place during what was called the Ammonite War. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Well, this first verse ought to give us a clue that David is on the wrong path a very slippery slope. He should have been away with his men in battle. He shouldn't have been staying behind, taking a nap in the middle of the afternoon in Jerusalem. He, we're most prone to sin, to temptation, when we are where we should not be. So what's your first step of getting lost? Are, are you in the wrong part of town when you should be at home? Are you in front of your computer when your family's asleep late at night? What is, uh, what is your wrong place Wrong time. What's dangerous for you? When are you most likely to be tempted? Because we know that Satan is like the roaring lion, prowling, seeking someone to devour. Let that sink in just a little bit. There's a spiritual battle happening right in our own families. For David, it was more than just being in the wrong place. It shows that he was going through some kind of mind change. He's gone from a hands-on king, a servant of God, and a leader of the people, to being an aloof king, sends people to do his work, and he stays home from a servant to being a lord. He wasn't just physically in the wrong place. I think he was in the wrong headspace. He was in the wrong frame of mind. You know, when I was growing up, we had these old spaghetti westerns, right? And you had the good guys and the bad guys. Well, the cowboys would always go out. And they'd be by themselves, and they'd, they'd be thirsty, and they'd see that mirage of water, and they'd go up and jump off the horse, and they'd run out to it, and go want to take a drink, and it's quicksand, and they'd start sinking, right? Well, the bad guys would get stuck and just suck in, and, an, and just, a, just a painful death awaits them. Well, the good guy, somebody would come in at the last minute and save them, right? The bad guys never had a way of escaping David's temptation here was a bit like that. He gets stuck in the quicksand here. We're going to see if he makes an escape. Verse 2. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace, and he looks out over the city and he notices a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. So here's a man of action with time on his hands, a warrior who now takes naps in the afternoon. He thinks he needs a little excitement a new interest, maybe an escape, and he is ripe to be enticed by his own lust. Here comes the sin. Verse 3, 3 through 5. And so as he's looking about the rooftop, what does he see? The beautiful woman. Now, we aren't told how long he looks. We're certainly, uh, we certainly know that he didn't look away. He didn't give the woman his privacy, her privacy. He stole her innocence And we soon find out he stole what was only her husband's. He sees her beauty, and he wants her, and he takes her. You know, it's not unusual at all when we read the commentaries that blame is put upon Bathsheba, that she did something by bathing, apparently in public, to entice David, that somehow she is guilty for this. Maybe so, but i got to tell you, folks, I don't see it in the text I don't see anything in the text itself. I don't see anything from a study of the Hebrew language. I don't see anything from a study of what was culturally practiced at the time. All we can really say here is that Bathsheba was in a place, in her own home, where bathing was typically done, and we don't know for sure if bathing was bathing of her face, bathing of her feet, bathing of her whole body. Whatever it is, she was in a place where it was customary for her to do, and David was in the wrong place at the wrong time. So we're not talking about Bathsheba's conduct today. We are talking about David's, and he could have stopped with with nothing more than an erotic, lustful fantasy, but he didn't. The point is, sins of the flesh always begin in the mind. So King David was the most powerful person in the kingdom, and he had grown accustomed to taking whatever it is he wanted. In verse 3, he sent someone to find out who she was, and and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, I know when we're going down the road, uh, there are signs that tell us of dangers ahead. When we're climbing the steep mountain slope, there are always handholds and footholds that'll keep it sliding right off the mountain. Shouldn't there be? There were things that David could have done to avoid and to have turned. I want you to think about this. 2 Timothy 2.22, just think of T's, 2 Timothy 22, 2.22, run from anything that stimulates youthful lusts. Another version says simply flee. The fact is that David wasn't thinking in a godly manner at all. At this moment, he was not a man after God's own heart. He did not flee. If you fail to flee, you will fail. That's the bottom line. People, we are not strong enough to resist in our own right. We need the power of God. If we resist and turn from the power of God, we will fail. He wasn't thinking about whether this would displease God. He wasn't thinking about his role as king. He wasn't thinking about being priest or judge or his family or his reputation or his standing. If, we, if he was one of our kids, Dad, you know what we'd say? You are out of control because he was. We'd want to grab him, probably shake him a little bit. The next verse, 4, describes what happens. David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period, and then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. David doesn't stop himself. He is a king acting like a god. Kings send for things, and they just take them. right? It's all about me. This is exactly what he does. He sends for her, takes her into his bedroom, uses her, and sends her home. But now he's got a problem she's pregnant. And Uriah is on the battlefield where he should be. He can't be daddy. He's got to cover up. So sin has consequences, terrible consequences. And David is caught in the quicksand. So David has to figure out a plan. What does he do? He sends word to his faithful commander, Joab. Let's read about what he says. Verse 6, Then David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sends him to David. David, When Uriah arrives, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. Then he told Uriah, go home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he'd left the palace. David didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and said, what's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away so long? Uriah replied, the ark And the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. Well, stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. But even then, David couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife, and he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. I want you to compare the character of David with Uriah at this point. Uriah is beyond loyal to his men and to his king. This is the way that David used to be with everyone except God. Only God he was more loyal to. Now Uriah, a foreigner, a Hittite, was showing David up in loyalty and integrity David has really fallen here. What, he still has a chance to stop. He can come clean. He can admit his wrongdoing, but he sinks even deeper. And what comes next, next is probably one of the worst things. Why? Because Uriah, if we go back in Scripture, we know that Uriah is one of his closest friends. He's one of his mighty men. That's been with him since the very beginning. One of the 30, 37 men, strong, loyal, faithful friends to David. And he's about to kill him. Verse 19, so the next morning David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, Station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest, then pull back so he'll be killed. Verse 16, so Joab, the commander, assigns Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out to the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. David has Uriah killed in cold blood, all to cover up his actions. You know, after all of this, Bathsheba mourns the death of Uriah. David marries Bathsheba. The child is born. Do you think that David sat back at this point and said, uh, I got out of this mess. David's dead. I got the woman. I got the, got the child. All is good. Verse 27 tells it all. But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. David did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Let's take inventory of David's sins. Slothfulness, lust, adultery, maybe even even rape, murder, lying, hypocrisy, pridefulness. We can go on and on with David here. There are times when we are all David. We really fall hard. I personally know how that feels. Maybe not the same sin but something that is just as damaging to our, to our walk with the Lord. Who hasn't sinned? You know, you may be feeling like, God can't use me. I'm just so messed up. I'm just so broken. I am not worthy. I am not fill in the blank. We've all got that blank. I got news for you. That is Satan talking to you. That is his lies. That is his deception that he wants you to believe that is not God's truth. Take—I I challenge you to take a look at any character in Scripture, save Jesus, who is the only one who is free from sin. The point is, we are all broken. But can I tell you this? God will use you if you just let him. He loves to use broken people like me and you. Now comes the confrontation. This is my favorite part of this, leading up to what David does next. We read about the way God uses broken people. He'll use friends to reach them. We're going to read about Nathan, God's trusted advisor, his friend. There are times when every one of us are called to be like Nathan and to call a friend back from their sin. Let me just hit the highlights of chapter 12 for you. So Nathan goes to David and he tells him this little story. He says, there's two men and they're in this town and one was rich, one was poor, the rich guy owned all, these, all this livestock, sheep and cattle, and the poor man, all he had was this little lamb. Well, the, the rich man had a guest that came in, and instead of taking from his own livestock, he goes and takes the sheep, the lamb, from the poor man, and he prepares it for his guest. David. David is furious at hearing this. As surely as the Lord lives he vowed any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. Then Nathan Nathan says to David, "You are that man. You're the man. You're the man." Have you ever been told that before, guys? You're the man. I have. That hurts. You're the man. Dripping with sarcasm. That's pointed. That goes right to the core. We also read in the text farther that David uh, is told by Nathan that the child is going to die as a result of his sin. And that happened. Sin has horrible consequences. Nathan loves David. And he loves God. And this is why he goes to David out of love, not judgment, not wrath, but to call his king back to God to call him back to the place and the headspace of where he's supposed to be. Galatians 6 tells us in it that we, uh, that a believer should go to another who is in sin. We are to gently and humbly help them come back to the right path. We're to, we're to be careful ourselves not to, not to fall into that same temptation ourselves. We're to help share one another's burdens. So Nathan speaks to David out of love and he speaks to him out of God's words, not his own. And he speaks to David in a way that David will hear him and listen to him. We've got to speak to our friends in the exact same way. Why don't we, people? We need to. How many of us watch something happen amongst our friends And we will go to the other friends and we will gossip about that. But we won't challenge. We will not hold our friends accountable. We won't speak to them in love. People, we owe it to them to do that. Now comes David, the confession. This is where David stops playing Lord, stops playing God, and he returns to being the servant king. And he writes Psalm 51. This is, this is one of the most beloved psalms in church. I use it in my office and counseling all the time because it, it has all the elements that we need as followers of Christ. In this psalm, we see David's torment, we see his guilt, we see his shame, and we see his sorrow. We're going to look at parts of this. We're going to see the power of God's word This is transformation of David's heart in this psalm. Listen to these. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because your great compassion. Blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. David is asking God for forgiveness. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. David recognizes his sin. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. He's looking for God's grace. Don't keep looking at my sin, David writes. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit in me. Do not banish me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. He is searching for God's grace. Look with favor on Zion and help her rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. David understands that in this, David can be used for God's future glory, and he is submitting himself for that. You see, look what David has done in this psalm. Number one, he has taken responsibility for his sin. Number two, he has asked for God's forgiveness. Number three, he has sought God's grace. And number four, he is seeking to to use his failure for God's glory. And so, folks, when we sin, I just want to to encourage us. Let's take responsibility. Let's ask for God's forgiveness. Let's seek His grace, and let's use our failures for His glory. Confession, restoration, renewal, and humble worship. See, we, we see in Romans 13 that we can starve the flesh and feed the spirit, we can clothe ourselves with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ because that gives us the power. You see, repentance is not so much about the sin as it is about restoring the relationship with God. We repent when we sin, we remove the guilt because of God's grace, and we are restored to God. That's what this story about David and Bathsheba is about. It's about placing David back in a position where he can be used by God, where he can be a man after the heart of God. We're all sinners. None of us are perfect. Hopefully our sin won't be adultery and murder. According to Jesus, I am an adulterer. He who looks at another woman with lust in his heart is already an adulterer. If I've been angry with my brother... I am already a murderer. That's, that's some condemnation. We deserve the wrath of God. We deserve the punishment for that. We are so far from God. But thankfully, if we do like David and we come to Jesus and we respond, we are washed white as snow. Did God use David after Bathsheba? Yes, yes. Yeah, he married Bathsheba, and he had a son, and that son died. We know that David continued to have struggles in his family. We also know that David was given another son with Bathsheba, Solomon. The Hebrew word is shalom, peace. God loved Solomon. And with him, he built his temple, and he was the wisest of of Israel's kings. And we know that part of the story was Solomon, Solomon. God had abundantly blessed Solomon with wisdom and, and wealth because he sought to serve God. You see, and it was David that God used both before and after Bathsheba to lead the way to the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. From the root of Jesse, the house of David, in spite of his brokenness, God continued to use David. So I'll come back to the original question Can God use me? After my Bathsheba, let me ask it another way. Am I a man after God's own heart? Well, do you believe that you're a sinner? Do you believe that you're unable to save yourself, that you deserve the wrath of God? Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God, that He came to earth fully human yet fully God, that He gave Himself as the atoning sacrifice for your sins, that He is who He said He was? that his sacrifice was sufficient, that he died, that he rose. Do you believe? Yeah, David remained faithful to God throughout his life. His loyalty to his creator was unquestioned. David had a deep desire to follow God and do everything God wanted him to do. He was a man after God's own heart. So, no struggle that we go through will ever exceed the grace and power of Jesus. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We have a high priest, Jesus Christ, who can sympathize with our weakness, one who has been tempted as we are, yet who was without sin. David knew about the old law of sacrifice, yet how much more is the sacrifice of Jesus. It was complete, once for all time. There's never been a greater demonstration of God's love and faithfulness than at the cross when Jesus paid that price for our guilt and our failures in full and completely. I just want you to trust in Jesus. If you haven't made that step, accept His forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, Father, Thank you so much for, for David. Yes, we thank you for his failure because it shows us, it shows us, Father, that we can come to you. We can come to you in repentance. We can come to you in turn. Father, we ask that you would lead us, that you would show us the way, that your spirit would be with us. Father, your word tells us that your grace is sufficient, that your power is made perfect in weakness. Father, I just confess for myself and all my friends seated here that we, we are weak and we need your help. So help us. Help us to be humble and to be dependent on the power of Jesus. Help us to be alert to Satan's schemes in our life. Help us to be responsive when we are tempted. Father, just help us to submit to you. Help us to survive the quicksand because only your grace can save us, Father. We love you. We pray all these things in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen.